0: We pass through them more times than we can count each day. They divide our world inside from out. Doors and doorways are portals and thresholds that define our movement through the spaces we occupy. They are also potent metaphors to describe transformation, change, or passage. They allow us to remain enclosed, hidden privately away, but they can also be open to something unexpected or new. They can let someone, or something, in. While doors are ubiquitous, everyday objects seen almost everywhere we go, they are also historical and cultural objects of fascination. They are engineering marvels, objects of legislation and litigation. Just as much as they are unadorned artifacts functioning simply as moving structures, they are also thresholds between worlds. As the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard once said, if one were to give an account of all the doors one has closed and opened, of all the doors one would like to reopen, one would have to tell the story of one's entire life. Coming up to the surface, I'm Rod Fadak, and you're peering through the periscope. Today, we're looking at doors and doorways. Walls are a nice invention, writes sociologist Jim Johnson. But if there were no holes in them, there would be no way to get in or out. They would be mausoleums or tombs. This is the beginning of Johnson's playful origin story. The problem is that if you make holes in the walls, anything and anyone can get in and out. For example, bears, visitors, dust, rats, noise. So architects, he continues, invented this hybrid, a whole wall, often called a door. But doors, I would argue, are much more than simply functional solutions to the problem of selective passage. In some cases, they have been the canvas onto which new visions of art have been written. For this, let's turn back the clock and look at some seriously opulent gates. You're hearing the morning crowds in the heart of Florence, Italy, the capital of Tuscany and an international icon for art, culture, history, economy, and industry. It's a city visited by millions of tourists every year. For some, it's considered the art history capital of the world. Florence contains some of the most memorable and revered artistic pieces from the Renaissance. Sitting smack in the middle of the city center, flanking the opulent, domed cathedral, stands the baptistry, a smaller but older structure. The baptistry is flanked by three doorways, each of them attractions in their own right. One of the city's most popular art pieces, and arguably one of the most popular of the entire Renaissance period, are the east doors. Rising 17 feet tall, made of a solid three tons of bronze, stand Lorenzo Ghiberti's Gates of Paradise. If you've seen them, you know how striking they are. It's no wonder they're one of the city's main attractions, drawing daily crowds like the one you just heard. They portray 10 scenes from the Old Testament, each meticulously composed and selected for narrative and visual impact. Commissioned in 1425, the doors consumed Ghiberti for over 50 years of his life. He took 27 years just to craft them. Once finished, they were a touchstone of both civic and religious life in the city. Some argue that they mark the moment when the Renaissance truly began. Ghiberti himself was a goldsmith, a writer, a sculptor, truly embracing that Renaissance label. Before being commissioned for the pieces he did for the baptistry, he apparently had a pastime counterfeiting antique coins. After winning a competition to construct the Northern Doors 25 years earlier, he was brought in again to showcase his talents. What he produced is undoubtedly a masterpiece. So much so that when Michelangelo saw them nearly 60 years later, he gave them their current name, the Gates of Paradise. I visited Florence back in 2015 and was really struck by these doors when I saw them. Of course what I actually saw, and what all visitors today see, is a replica installed where the originals once were. The originals were removed in 1990 and underwent an intensive restoration process, a process which took, coincidentally, the same amount of time as Ghiberti took to craft them, 27 years. I remember them as golden doors, but I think this is because they are gilded with a gold-mercury mixture which has been painted over the top of the reliefs. But even if they weren't made of solid gold, these doors also weren't cheap. They ended up costing the Florentine Republic the equivalent of their defense budget for an entire year, what would approximate today to about $3 million. Can you imagine any modern government matching its defense budget to a single commissioned art piece? So the question remains, why doors? We might wonder why so much energy was spent on doors. This is an excerpt from a discussion between art historians Beth Harris and Stephen Zucker as they stand in front of the restored doors, now held in the Florentine Chapel across from the baptistry. Doors historically have been the place where one focuses sculptural attention. If you look at medieval cathedrals, the doors are often surrounded by the most elaborate carving. But if you go all the way back to the classical tradition, if you go back to ancient Rome, there is a great tradition of bronze doors. And it makes sense that the Florentines would want bronze doors in this tradition on the baptistry, since the Florentines believed that their baptistry had ancient roots, that it was a classical Roman building. There has always been something about that liminal space of the doorway, a passage, a transition, a gateway. They have been objects of decoration, of adornment. And in the case of Ghiberti's gates, of showcasing a new theory of seeing, and of depicting depth. Ghiberti's use of depth is renowned in each of these vignettes, which is remarkable even more so as it is one of the earliest examples of perspective in Renaissance art. The use of converging lines into a vanishing point to create the illusion of layered and deep space was a new technique at the time. This was the birth of linear perspective and it is on full display here. So everything here is not only about an illusion of space, but also about an illusion of of reality in terms of the figures. They move gracefully and stand in contraposto. There's an ease of the figures that is so different than the Gothic doors that came before them. The depth in each scene offers the viewer a kind of window, both narratively and visually. Narratively, in the thematic treatment of the Old Testament and in the subtle political messages that suggest a hopeful optimism in then-contemporary Florentine politics. Visually, with the use of perspective, they give us an appearance of another place, 11 snapshots from the Renaissance Christian imaginary. This was the result of Ghiberti obsessing nearly 50 years over the nature of seeing and of depicting depth and using the canvas of a door to paint these ideas. While the original gates remain permanently closed in this chapel's museum across the way, they stand today as works of major importance to an entire age of art and history. Doors clearly can define and mark much more than just space, but also time itself. If you find yourself in Florence, Go fight the crowds and check them out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Everyone's been here before. You're a couple hours into your flight. The beverage service has just finished, and everyone's crammed in the back of the plane, waiting for the bathrooms to free up. In the rear of the plane, you shuffle awkwardly, Perhaps daydreaming, maybe stretching your legs, maybe you're looking out the tiny window on the rear door. And let's face it, if you're like me, the thought has crossed your mind at least once. What would happen if I just pulled that handle? If you've got a vivid imagination, you might envision a sudden burst of air, rapid decompression, huge gusting winds. Bodies being sucked out the side of the plane. Maybe something like Ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seat belts now. Fasten your seat belts now. I have no control on my side. No control at all. But uh let's not get ahead of ourselves. What would really happen if you swung that handle over to the open position? For those of you with a fear of flying, and even for those of us with just vivid imaginations, we can rest easy. Even if you gave in to that impulse to try and open the cabin door in the middle of flight, it would be next to impossible to do so. That's because today, almost all airplane doors, including emergency exits, are designed to prevent precisely something like this from happening. They are designed like plugs, In fact, most of them installed today are called plug-type doors. Think of it like the plug in your bathtub. The plug itself is wider at the edges than the opening of the drain. That's why it doesn't fall through and clog your pipes. Airplane doors work similarly. The door itself is actually wider on the inside than the aperture on the fuselage of the plane. The seal made between the door and frame is reinforced by the pressure difference between the air inside of the cabin and the thinner air outside the airplane. The higher pressure inside the airplane pushes the wider doors against the smaller opening in the fuselage, creating an airtight and nearly unbreakable seal so long as the cabin remains pressurized. But wait, if the doors are larger than the apertures on the fuselage, how do they open or close? If you've been in an airplane recently, you'll maybe remember that these doors don't remain open inside of the cabin. They're too big and bulky and would take up too much interior space. So the doors have to somehow get around the opening that they plug. This is a problem explicitly articulated in one of the original patents filed for the plug-type door for aircrafts, issued to Boeing in 1958. In their cumbersome patent writing, the problem is phrased like this. It is about, quote, getting the door through a doorway which is narrower in some dimension, usually transversely, than the door itself, and yet still ensuring a proper ceiling all around the door when it is closed. So, in other words, how do you get the plug through the drain when you want the water to pass through? The solution to this engineering problem has varied over time and brand and airplane model. The doors on the early Boeings, for instance, had gates built into the tops and bottoms of the door frames. The first thing that happens when the door mechanism is moved is that these gates open, making the door actually shorter. If you watch their operation, you'll see that most of these doors hinge brilliantly, rotating along multiple axes simultaneously to open and close. The doors typically move inward first, rotating transversely, before starting to swing outwards. Most plug doors use this idea of being wider than the opening rather than taller to leave just enough room for the doorway to fit through the opening in a combination of rotations and tilts. This is usually some mix of sliding or rotating inwards into the cabin before opening outwards through the doorframe. The mechanisms and plane models have changed over the years. With most of the core tenets of this idea remaining intact, even if the opening and closing motions change considerably. Not all doors on planes are plug doors, but all of them rely, in one way or another, on pressure differentials to strengthen the seal. Since plug doors and hatches have to be pulled inwards to be opened, this also means that in flight, the pressure differential pushes the door or hatch shut against the seals in the frame. If you want to open it, you'll be pulling against the higher pressure, requiring an impossibly huge amount of force somewhere between 10 and 20,000 pounds of it. These cabin doors, in other words, aren't moving in flight, no matter how intent you are on jumping out of your airplane. Now, it's one thing to get a few theoretical answers from pilots and engineers on internet forums. It's another thing entirely to have experimental proof of concept. Fortunately, we have both to draw on. In 2011, a belligerent passenger on a Qantas Airlines flight tried to open the cabin door in mid-flight not once, but twice. Now, it might be too generous to call him a torchbearer of empirical testing, but he did help prove that opening a commercial aircraft door in flight is next to impossible to do. I can imagine this is even more so the case when you're super drunk. You'll find a small cult following of dedicated airplane door enthusiasts out there on the internet. Short video clips of in-flight preparations receive tens of thousands of views from people wanting to catch a glimpse of the flight attendant closing or opening the cabin door. Training videos likewise get tens of thousands of views on YouTube, with commenters debating the ins and outs of the hinges, seals, and operations of the doors. I'm certainly convinced watching good engineering can indeed be a riveting experience. I think one forum poster summarized it all perfectly at the end of a long discussion on aircraft doors. Doors are complicated, they said. I couldn't agree more. The 2012 film Lincoln, directed by Steven Spielberg, was largely lauded by historians and film critics for its good enough historical accuracy. Daniel day lewiss portrayal of the monumental American icon was expectedly praised, with historians agreeing that the dramatic core of the historical moment was essentially captured. Most, I think, agreed that the film captured the political tensions and tribulations of the passage of the 13th Amendment and the fight to abolish slavery at the close of the Civil War. One of the principal characters, Representative Thaddeus Stevens, is portrayed by Tommy Lee Jones in the film. He is given ample screen time as a champion of the effort. In one particular scene, we're drawn into Stevens' office as he and his colleagues debate their political maneuverings. He drags his feet about everything, Lincoln. Why this urgency? We got it through the Senate without difficulty because we had the numbers. Come December, you'll have the same in the House, cooperating with, with him. Never trusted the president, never trusted anyone, but hasn't he surprised you? No, Mr. Stevens, he hasn't. The scene is concluded by Jones's character leaving his office, shown in a reverse shot with the office door closing automatically behind him in a dramatic punctuation. <laughs> it's late. I'm old. I'm going home. At least one other reviewer was struck by this, and posted their concern to a forum. They note, I was watching the movie Lincoln when I noticed Tommy Lee Jones goes out a door with a door closer at the top of it. It just made me wonder when door closers came into use. Indeed, earlier in the scene, if you look closely, you can see the familiar little bent arm mechanism above the door itself, an automatic door closer. And, as it turns out, the viewer was right to wonder. They picked up on a minor anachronism. While the events of the film take place in and around 1865, contemporary door closers wouldn't be invented until nearly 15 years later, in 1880. The story of their invention is worth recounting. The first patent for a door-closing device was issued in 1873 to a mechanical engineer, Francis Richards. His device was called the door check. But it simply closed doors without regard to the speed in which it did so. It was essentially a weight that slammed doors shut. Though these door checks had become fairly common pieces of hardware by 1880, the problem of slamming doors still plagued architects and residents. By 1880, a Boston newspaper declared that, quote, there remains a fortune to the man who can invent a door that cannot be left open and cannot be slammed. Coincidentally, at this time, a Boston-based building contractor, Lewis Norton, was working on a number of public buildings throughout the city. After inspecting the completion of a constructed church, the congregation leaders asked him to stick around, just to make sure everything was in running order. He ran into door trouble on the very first day. He described the opening day of the building, when, quote, thousands thronged to get in. Everything was in fine shape, he wrote, but the doors, both inside and outside, opened out, and as the people were coming in, the wind would close them with a bang that could be heard all over the building and greatly disturb the services. So, he writes about the dilemma, I had a think coming. He did the obvious thing and switched the doors to double hinges which let them swing open in both directions inward and outward from the church but this meant the wind pushed open the doors making sure they were never fully shut and let in a continual draft of cold air he immediately received new complaints from the chilly churchgoers during the services in norton's words he would have to head back and have another think This second think lasted a little bit longer, sending him nightly up into his private attic, where he spent months working past midnight. What he came up with resembled the basic structure inside of automatic door closers today, a cylinder, an arm, and a guide rod to control the operation of the piston. He quickly set about making the second version of his prototype, installing the final product on the large church doors, and letting the bishop test the new device. He threw them closed three times in quick succession with a force that shook Norton's confidence in his untested device. But the door check held, and the doors remained closed, even against the strong winds fighting them. The bishop turned to him, remarking, Well, Mr. Norton, I guess you have the door closing problem solved now. By June, Norton had received a patent for what was considered to be the first automatic door closer, and he had founded the Norton Door Check Company, which still exists today. His memoir detailing his invention and the formation of this company are a delight to read. They were written back in 1937 and only published in 1986 after they were found inadvertently in an unused desk while an archivist was looking through old records. So while we might be nitpicking films for leaving in minor inconsequential anachronisms, Finding them sometimes reveals a rich history behind the things we so often take for granted. Not only are automatic door closers convenient, they are essential for building safety today. Every door rated for fire protection, at least in America, is required to have some automatic door closure mechanism installed. I have one of these in every passage in my apartment building. And now, every time I let my front door sweep closed behind me, I'm grateful to Mr. Norton for having all those things. Many of you will be familiar with Aldous Huxley's philosophical essay, The Doors of Perception. Fewer might know that the essay's title is actually an allusion to William Blake, the romantic poet, in his collection of poems entitled The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Blake used the phrase The Doors of Perception to describe the myopia of man. That's capital M, man. As his poem suggests, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up, till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. But what Blake missed is that there is a little bit of the infinite in doors themselves, be they doors of art, doors of design, or doors of thought. Doors and doorways don't just contain us, they are not just barriers or blockades, they are also openings that allow us to pass and move through. They are thresholds of transformation. For many, they have conjured notions of hesitation, of temptation, of security, of desire and of welcome, of respect and of remorse. To quote Bachelard again, And what of all the doors of mere curiosity that have tempted being for nothing, for emptiness, for an unknown that is not even imagined? Sometimes all it takes is moving a little closer, looking through the glass or the keyhole, and glimpsing something on the other side. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Periscope. I hope you enjoyed it. This was a first attempt, so things are still being figured out. I expect that the audio quality and consistency will improve with future episodes. Please feel free to email me any questions or suggestions, including fact checks and topic ideas. You can reach me at podcastperiscope at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to engaging and learning from listeners. In future episodes, I hope to discuss shared challenges of new urbanism, forgotten mythic figures, and the concept of serendipity. Until then, be well and stay curious.